Are you tempted enough to return to the political sphere? So I wasn't. I wouldn't use the term tempted, <laughs> but this is a critical moment, and and I question. I question whether I can stand outside at this moment. So I'm definitely looking into it. This is jo- Johnny Gould's Jewish State. So delighted to meet up with Dr. Enad Wilf again on her whistle-stop tour of London. She met with politicians of all parties at the Houses of Parliament, plus journalists and Jewish leaders and their communities. And she made time for our catch-up right here. A voice from the left who isn't afraid to call out shortcomings there and give credit to the right where it's due, and vice versa. Originally from the peace camp, she's been on quite a journey herself. She believed like so many right across the political spectrum back then in surrendering land for peace. But today, we all face the chilling reality of October the 7th to show what Palestinianism is really about. They keep telling us, she says. Let's believe them. Inat says Israel could save a fortune on enemy intelligence just by being more attentive. And as I've always pushed for in Johnny Gould's Jewish State and on my talk TV shows, peace is out there via the converging interests of the Gulf states who recognize a Muslim Arab reformation is due. Iran and its proxies threaten us all. The Abraham Accords shows the way to a new Muslim identity which accepts Israel and pushes back against hating Jews. The absurdity of being dubbed white colonialists. We are all the children of Abraham. Trouble is, we look to viable, peacemaking Palestinian leadership, but there isn't any anywhere, none for sure in the tunnels of Gaza, not in Ramallah either. So, let's solve the Israeli-Arab conflict stage by stage. And for that, we look to the Gulf. Co-author of The War of Return, how Western indulgence of the Palestinian dream has obstructed the path to peace with Adi Schwartz, Inat says let's finally tackle Palestinian rejectionism, the no, no, no to peace. Israel needs to negotiate with preconditions. Listen up to hear what they are. And Netanyahu is characterized as the head of Israel's most right-wing government, a firebrand with a thirst for war. That's if you believe the echo chamber. But he's quite the opposite, says Inat. For a decade or more, he was cautious, not taking military chances. But we're way past that now. And while the nation isn't squarely behind him for sure, the people are squarely behind the war to eliminate Hamas. Israel's ground-up nation has risen to the challenge and when it gets to the top, finds a vacuum of leadership. The strength of civil society and its unity in action since October the 7th is a sight to behold. With thanks to the Anglo-Israel Association. Inat Wilf, a rare pleasure to have you in London. Welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State once again. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. It's wonderful to have you here, and we are post-October the 7th which has changed every metric about what it is to be an Israeli, about what it is to be a Jew in the diaspora. Israel is certainly right now at this existential moment. I mean, Israelis feel 
that the war is not about Gaza or the, it's, it's fundamentally whether we can live as sovereign Jews in our ancestral homeland. There's a real sense of going back to the most fundamental questions. And I think what is going to happen to a lot of Israelis going forward is that whatever political debates we're going to continue having, Jews will always have intense political debates. They will still be based on a shared understanding of what our enemies want and that our enemies are not about the occupation or the settlements or the blockade on Gaza, that they have always wanted one thing and one thing only, which is no Jewish state, and that this is what we're fighting for, nothing less. And you said in your own words, October the 7th is the realization of that Palestinian vision of return. Yes. It was It was never innocent, as you said. Yeah. It always had that violent brutal triumphalism over the Jewish state, to restate what Palestinian identity is to a massive extent. The Arabs don't want the Jews to have a state at all anywhere. The Jews just want a state. It is Zionism yes. versus anti-Zionism. Exactly. Yes, and uh, over the years when I would talk about that, including in your show, or that this is what the conflict is, when I spoke about the centrality of the idea of return in the, in the Palestinian ethos, a lot of people would not take it seriously. They thought that either it's not a serious idea or that it's an innocent idea in the sense of like, oh, it's just some nostalgia to a long gone great grandparents home. And I, I would always say that, you know, look at the text, look at the Arab Palestinian text from the 50s, from the 60s. Return was always this violent triumphalist idea. It was always a political idea in the service of a Jewish state. And the reason that there was so much exhilaration, support, glee for October 7th, I mean, we saw it erupt on that day, just just so much glee and happiness. Immediately. Immediately, immediately. It's because this was the realization of something that they've been groomed for, talked about, raised for, for decades. So they see it happening and they're thrilled. Should we talk about UNRWA, which appears to be the very centrality of this, the malign UN organization which perpetuates the war, which keeps Palestinians as, quotes refugees, and in multiple cases, as Hillel Neuer and you have pointed out so eloquently, they are Hamas terrorists themselves. So what I've emphasized in all the years of talking about UNRWA is that the notion of terrorism, the notion of brutality is key to UNRWA. You know, now they're trying to pretend that, oh, the fact that some of their employees or certainly their graduates participated in the massacre is a mistake, is a, you know, it's an aberration. But now it's called Hamas, and decades ago it was called Black September or Fatah. Or the, but once you raise an entire generation, an entire people, and this is what UNRWA does, on the idea that they don't have to accept the Jewish state, they don't have to move forward, they can continue dreaming of this violent vision of return, that their land was stolen from them, that's what they are raised on, then the first person who puts a gun in your hand and tells you we are going to take back, in their mind, Palestine from the evil people who took it from us, 
then of course you're going to join whatever organization is going to put this gun in your hand and tell you we're going to do it. So the violence is the natural outcome of the very existence of UNRWA, and the existence of UNRWA is the outcome of the Arab-Palestinian determination to not allow the Jewish state a single day of peace until it is undone. And this is the idea, when you start understanding that Palestinianism, Palestinian nationalism, is an anti-Zionist cause, no wonder through the years it has gone from being uh, on the left, on the right, it's been a Nazi ideology, it's been a communist ideology, it's been an Islamic religious ideology, it's been a completely secular Muslim ideology, and it changes through time according to the to the, the movement of, uh, of international politics. Yes, indeed. What uh, the Arabs of the early 20th century discovered fairly early on is that they have a massive asset in the fact that they are battling not just the Jews, but Jews who are seeking sovereignty, the reconstitution of an ancient homeland. I mean, that's a big, big thing. And they discovered that this is an asset because they can always count on whatever anti-Jewish ideology is prevalent at a particular historical moment. And like you said, it could be secular, it could be religious, it could be Soviet, it could be Nazi, it could be Arab, it could be Western. Um, what The only permanent thing, the only continuous thing, is that it's always anti-Jewish, that it's always anti-Zionist, and that it latches on to Palestinianism as essentially a respectable mask for being anti-Jewish. And one of your famous comments is Zionism has just been too successful. You know, we've gone from being stateless and dispossessed in our grandparents' generation, powerless, destroyed, to being able to defend ourselves with such vigor through existential reasons. It's a transition which, because of that success, has prompted such a violent response, and October the 7th is just the latest. Precisely, because the idea of powerful Jews, Jews who can defend themselves by themselves, is still an anathema, almost a theological anathema, to cultures and civilizations that have been predicated on the idea of Jewish dispossession, uh, Jewish statelessness, Jewish powerlessness. So in many ways, the, the civilizational shock of the change in Jewish history is not something that is immediately accepted. Sometimes I bring the example that, you know, for 1400 years, Jews and since the Arab and Muslim conquest, Jews in Arab and Muslim lands were known as the dispossessed, the powerless, the meek, the Jews who are at the mercy of the Arab and Muslim leaders, the Jews who are of a lower status. And there were many things that made sure of that. So, for example, Jews could not ride horses because horses were a mark of dignity. They could only ride donkeys. They could certainly not carry arms. So I'm saying, imagine that in the midst of the Arab and Muslim world, the early Zionists are riding horses, right? We know the pictures. They're carrying arms. They insist on defending themselves by themselves. Those are very different Jews, and that is a theological challenge that will not go over without a violent response. The violent response is essentially intended to, quote-unquote, put the Jews back in their proper place. And October 7th was very much of that.
the notion that, you know, Jews can be brutalized, butchered, defenseless. The idea was that this is what Jews should be, not defending themselves, not sovereign, not managing their own lives. However, we do have one sunrise on the horizon. It is the very timely negotiations to conclusion of the Abraham Accords. And this isn't just about a Sunni reformation. This isn't just about the common threat of Islamism upon their kingdoms. But it is also a realization, isn't it, that Israel is a partner in ideology. And Mm -hmm. though we have common enemies and our enemies are in a different order Mm -hmm. to the Sunni Arabs, uh, the threats Mm -hmm. to them are actually existential on both sides, aren't Mm -hmm. they? Yes, and I think I look at what's happening in the Abraham Accords countries and looking at the Gulf, and this is where I draw hope these days because the Jews are always destined or damned, choose your word, to remain an ethnic, linguistic, religious, national minority in an overwhelming Arab and Islamic Middle East, which means that our only path to peace is being accepted and embraced by an Arab and Islamic Middle East. And that means that we need an Arab and Muslim vision that looks at the Jewish state and doesn't say foreign, white, European, settler, colonialist, crusader, which are all just synonyms for foreign, but looks at the Jewish state and says, Abraham, that says the Jews are a people with a history, with a connection to the land. They belong here. They're not foreigners. And the Jewish state, Zionism, is actually the expression of the connection of the Jews to this land. This is compatible with an Arab identity. This is compatible with Islam. So for me, the the ray of hope is indeed the possibility of a reformulated Arab and Muslim ethos, identity, that looks at the Jewish state and rather than foreign, says Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, our (laughs) common ancestor, Ibrahim, inshallah, bizrat Hashem. Indeed. And let's bring it on to the man who made it all possible, who may be back in the White House. He might not have the greatest table manners, right? He might be a bit rude in news conferences, but he didn't have, have some very, very powerful counterintuitive men and women in his administration. Let's give them a name check. People like Jason Greenblatt Mm -hmm. and uh, his son-in-law, Jared Jared Kushner, Kushner, and even Len Khodakovsky, for example, Mm -hmm. another man in the Mike Pompeo uh, crew who helped negotiate some of the COVID. And David Friedman. And David Friedman. And now now we're going to get Bruegers from the people that we didn't mention that were part of it. But, you know, he was the first president to say, hey, Get on the love train, because Mm -hmm. if you don't now, you're going to be left behind. He was certainly the first to break with decades of Western and American indulgence of the Palestinian vision of no Jewish state. He took it seriously, and as a result, he confronted it. Uh, I think a lot of Westerners behind, uh, before him just didn't take it seriously, and, and this is the most charitable explanation I have, but they didn't take it seriously, so they never confronted it. They even indulged in it. He was the first to say, enough is enough. You know, we're, we're going to begin to reverse 
of the equation. We're not supporting you. We're not indulging. He defunded UNRWA, um, which now people understand was the right thing to do and needs to be done. Um, and certainly, uh, this this is the only policy that uh, that has any chance of success. The one that says the Jewish state is here to stay. Its connection to Jerusalem is historical. Um, if they win wars, then you have to, you can't be the people who constantly wage wars. And when you lose, you say, okay, control Z, we're going to restart. There, there need to be consequences. The idea that there are consequences to waging violent wars. Um, those are, the fact is that in every other conflict, those were considered normal ideas. But in, when it came to the Jewish state, there were, were somehow revolutionary ideas. However, we are never going to make the mistake again in our living memory about ignoring the Palestinians. There was that temptation during the triumphalism of the Abraham Accords that, hey, you know, we don't even think about the Palestinians anymore. And October the 7th was a devastating yes. wake-up call from that complacency. Yeah. Yes. So I say that within Israel, the Israeli right was correct to point out that the Arab-Palestinian ideology is a total negation of the Jewish state. But the Israeli left was right to say you can't ignore the Palestinians uh, because you're right. There was too much triumphalism in the sense of like, oh, they don't matter and we can ignore them. And I can say I was never a part of that. I thought that we have to confront that ideology, that there's no way that we can allow that ideology to flourish in our backyard, and it will not have consequences. So certainly I think uh, that going forward, Israelis will not fall into thinking that we can ignore the Palestinians and that we can ignore their total ideology that wants no Jewish state between the river and the sea. And to the negotiations with the Palestinians, and they say no all the time. Abba Eben's famous, yes. you know, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. But now we know why. It's clear. They want the whole lot. Uh, they want all of it. They don't want us there. And so now when um, the Israeli government opens their arms and say, yeah, you know, we, we open up with no preconditions whatsoever. Actually, what you're saying is, no, it's now time to offer peace talks. But there have to be... Preconditions, us Israelis, us Jews, what are, what are they in at? Absolutely. I am not of the view that Israel should say negotiations without preconditions. The preconditions should actually be the ones that say that the war is over, meaning the Palestinians need to declare that their century-long war against Zionism is over, that they recognize the equal right of the Jewish people to self-determination in the land, that they want to live next to the Jewish state rather than instead of it, and that they understand that the specific implications of that are that they are not refugees and that they do not possess a right of return into the sovereign state of Israel. If we cannot be sure that the Palestinians accept that there will be a Jewish state, then there's no use negotiating. And I think we need to be very clear of that before we even spend any time negotiating. Because then at that point, uh, we can convince the Palestinians, because they never lie about yeah. their true intentions, because there's no one out there to negotiate in the Palestinians. Not right now. But I think it's actually important to just say, this is what negotiations for peace look like. Yeah. We made the assumptions over the years that when Palestinians said two states, we made the wild assumption that one of those states is Jewish. 
and somehow they didn't mean that. So we actually need to make sure that that is an accepted basis, and then on that we can negotiate. And until that is accepted, then we shouldn't waste any time. Specificity is the route to peace because the Palestinians can't lie, as you so pithily yeah. put it. So let's talk about Britain now, and indeed Canada, the United States, where we're starting to see horrible weekly protests, mm-hmm. performative demonstrations against Starbucks yeah. and all sorts <laughs> of other Starbucks, places. Yes. You know, I mean, the only evil thing there is it's seven bucks for a caramel <laughs> toffee latte. But anyway, that's another thing. True. Societies can do one of two things, can't they, Inat, as you've so uh, clearly said. They can either search for who to blame, mm-hmm. which is kind of what's going on in, in such a shock yeah. to our Jewish diaspora, or actually search for a solution within to their problems. The West is actually wanting for leadership amongst the Trudeaus, the Bidens, the Lord Camerons, the Rishi Sunaks. You know, where's Churchill? Where is he, man? What's happened to our leadership? So coming at it from the Jewish perspective, because I am convinced that the rise of anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism is always the mark of a society in crisis, it's always the mark of a society experiencing failure, then I have learned to ask not what have the Jews done this time, but rather what is going on in the society that is experiencing the rise of this. And when you begin to frame the question that way, you always find the answers. Uh, It's not a coincidence that the um, exposing the rot in American academia came with the rise in anti-Zionism in American academia. Because again, it's always the mark of a crisis, of a failure. So I very much hope and believe that America, the UK, other countries can emerge from that, but they cannot emerge from that without realizing that this is the real problem. The problem is a crisis in the society. The problem is not with Israel or the Jews or Zionism. Those are just scapegoating mechanisms that have never done any good for the society using them. Finally, Anat, um you have once again demonstrated a clarity that everyone who is a supporter of Israel, Jewish person, and indeed people of goodwill, really appreciate. Uh, mm-hmm. You were a member of the Knesset. Yes. And you are probably looking on in despair at some of the things of our political class. We've seen Israel rising from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Society is so strong in Israel, and they're looking at their political leadership, and there isn't any. Wasteland. So they are setting up great yes. organizations and, 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 and help for the, the refugees, great help for the IDF as the yes. soldiers, the reservists go into battle. Are you tempted in that to return to the political sphere? So I wasn't I wouldn't use the term tempted, <laughs> but there's definitely a sense that this is a critical moment that and and I question I question whether I can stand uh outside at this moment. So I'm definitely looking into it. But one of the benefits of already having been in politics is that I have no desire to be in politics. I only want to be there if I'm relevant, if what I have to say is relevant at this particular moment. And that's the question that I seek to answer. I think as you move with the times, and you always have something relevant to say, (laughs) and it has been a privilege to follow your line along with modern-day Israeli history, I'm sure there is definitely 
a place for you in modern-day Israeli politics in Atwilf, as always. Thank you very much for joining us here on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you. Magnificent. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was really nice. Was it wonderful? Yes, it was Thank you very much. Thank you. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Dangor Education. There's a lot of competing attention for you, I do know. You're probably consuming more media than ever before to be right up to speed with what's going on in Israel and back home. If you enjoy my podcast and you'd rather it existed than not, that I kept doing it, you can support me very simply by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash johnnygould because it really helps. Tell your friends, subscribe now if you haven't already, scroll back and look through the 120 previous episodes. And as always, thank you for listening.